Hey everyone, welcome to the Maroon Weekly's special housing edition. I'm reporter Quinn Kane. If you're like a lot of students on this campus, you're probably aware that the University of Chicago has a complicated relationship with its nearby community, to put it lightly. One of the biggest ways this relationship is strained is real estate. You might wonder about what real estate holdings the university has in Hyde Park, or how the university's developments, like the new Woodlawn Commons, are displacing Hyde Park residents. We'll get answers to those questions, plus a few more. This podcast is in conjunction with the Maroon's housing issue, where the Maroon is covering what it's like to live in Hyde Park. In this podcast, I looked into just one group of people who have seen their housing options decrease as a result of the university's expansion. This group is the graduate students and staff of the university. I learned that the university actually has a few programs that help grad students and staff find housing. I also learned that some of these programs have been quietly disappearing. A lot of you listening may be undergrads like me. For us, there's pretty much two options for where we live in on-campus dorms or in off-campus apartments. But what about everyone else that's part of the university? Where do janitors and postdocs and dining hall employees and grad students live? It may seem that the grad students and staff only have the option of living in apartments or houses or some other form of grown-up living arrangement that's foreign and scary to undergrads, and to some degree that's true. But the university has programs to help its grad students and staff find housing in and around Hyde Park. And in this podcast, we're going to take a look at one of those programs. It's called Residential Properties. I talked with someone who lives in one of the university's residential properties. His name is Jimmy Heald. His wife used to be a postdoc here and is now a research associate in the psychology department. His family's story isn't all that unusual for people who have lived in the university's residential properties. I started out by asking Jimmy to explain how the university's residential properties are different from regular apartment companies. Uh, we, obviously, the university is our landlord, and we have had the university as our landlord since 2011. You have to be affiliated with the university. You can be a grad student. You can be a postdoc. You can be a staff member, but you have to have some affiliation. As far as how it differs from having a private landlord, I would say that it has a staff that's slightly more responsive than private landlords that I've known in Hyde Park. Uh, I had lived in Hyde Park from 20, 2003 until 2011 uh, with private landlords, and so I'd say on average the university has been a better landlord. On average, you know, there's exceptions, but on average they've been better. Other than that, it's not much different. I don't necessarily know how much would be different. But You mentioned some of them, but what are the advantages of renting directly from the university other than sort of a responsive staff? I think that, in my experience, the price is somewhat better. Uh, it's, it doesn't... Uh, rise with the market, or at least uh, in our experience, there have been private landlords who have wanted to make more money. The university has not been so money-driven as far as the rent that we pay. So I think that we get a pretty good deal for a three-bedroom apartment, and in the last couple of places, we've had a better-than-market price on our apartments. And that's the thing. It seems like this is a pretty good option for a lot of people who are looking for slightly more affordable housing in Hyde Park. The Residential Properties website reads, quote, Consider renting one of the over 1,500 units owned and managed by the University of Chicago, a responsive landlord committed to providing safe and comfortable housing, end quote. And for the most part, that seems accurate. Jimmy says the university is a very responsive landlord, and the buildings are safe and often pretty close to campus. Plus, they're cheap. 
Residents can find three-bedroom apartments rented from the university that only cost in the low 1000s per month, whereas comparable apartments from private real estate companies often range in the low $2,000. These apartments are a great choice for a lot of people who study or work at the university. But there's a problem. Graduate students and staff who once depended on this option for affordable living arrangements are seeing these properties disappear. The university has gotten rid of tons of these buildings. See, the university bought up a bunch of these apartment buildings about a decade ago, back during the Great Recession, when real estate prices were at serious lows. But now, the university retains barely over a quarter of the residential properties they did in 2013. In fact, Jimmy and his family have lived in four different residential properties, in part due to the fact that the university has sold so many of them. This is our fourth, that's our fourth place with university housing. Where did you live before your current building? Uh, we lived at 1110 East 53rd Street for 12 months. We moved in there July of 2015, uh, kind of expecting to live there indefinitely but we were notified in October of 2015 that they were selling to a private landlord. For the first three months, it was university, then mm -hmm. it was sold. And as part of the arrangement, the new owner had to honor all current leases, but they weren't going to renew us. Uh, the price that we were paying for the university, when the university was our landlord, was roughly $1,100 for a three-bedroom apartment. And we knew that was a good deal. We knew it at the time. The private company that came in said we were welcome to renew the lease at $2,500 per month. Jimmy's building was just one of 21 properties sold in the summer of 2015. Of these properties, 19 were apartment buildings that housed grad students and staff. The other two properties were vacant lots. The university sold a lot of these properties to a company called Pioneer Acquisitions. This company buys buildings, renovates them, and then works with real estate companies like Mac or Hyde Park Property Management to rent the apartments out. So. The apartments that the university once rented for affordable prices are now renovated and rented by private property companies. Studios and one bedrooms are a little over $1,000 per month, and three bedrooms are in the low to mid-2000s. Just as a reference, you can find a studio for under $1,000 per month, and a three-bedroom in the mid-1,000s from the university's residential properties today. When the university sold all these buildings, they made a pretty savvy business move. After the university sold off 21 properties in the summer of 2015, they sold 13 more the next summer. When the university announced that they would sell more properties in the summer of 2016, James Hennessy, the university's associate vice president for commercial real estate at the time, said that the sale from the previous summer demonstrated how profitable selling these properties could be. Like the last time, the university sold all these to Pioneer Acquisitions, who again renovated the properties and then helped rent them out. With the 13 residential properties the university still owns, they can afford to charge relatively low rent because they got the buildings on the cheap. But Jimmy told me that it doesn't seem like the university could be making all that much money off of these remaining properties at all because on top of their low rent, the university isn't even renting out all the units in these buildings. Your current building isn't completely full right now, is that's it? That's correct. It is not. I know of at least one unit that's been vacant for at least four months. You know, I remember when I first talked with you at your building, I went around to some of the other units or the other uh, sort of buzzers, and a lot of those buzzers didn't have a name on them. I don't know if that means that those units are empty or... 
I can't speak for uh, the other doors, the sure. other units. Our specific uh, door uh, leads to six units of two on each of three floors, and five are currently occupied and one is vacant, and it's been vacant for a while. That unit was in a state of some disrepair when the people moved out. I think they've been long-term tenants. I think the university has gone in and looked at it, and they realized that it's a fairly expensive job to do the renovations to get somebody back in there. So as of right now, it's still vacant. I wanted to see if this held at other residential properties. So I visited a few others with maroon photographer and podcaster Grace Houck. We went to see if there were more buzzers that were empty. What are we looking at? So this is 6022 South Drexel. This is one of the properties owned by University Residential Properties. Why don't we go check out the entrance to it? So why are we here? We're here because Jimmy Heald, who I talked to, who's lived in several of these buildings, he says that his building is not fully occupied, um, that a lot of the units are in such bad condition that the university can't rent them out. And Did he live in this particular building? He's never lived in this one. Okay. But when I was at his building, I walked around to all the doors at the building. There were like five or six doors and several of the buzzers didn't have any names on them. A lot of them did. And that's not necessarily an indication that all the buzzers that didn't have names indicated empty units, mm -hmm. but I think if we can look and see if there's a lot of other buildings that have that same sort of thing, that might give us a sense of whether the university is renting out all these units or not, making use of them. It looks like the buzzers are inside the first door. So maybe we can get a look through the window. Okay, so it looks like all of these buzzers have names on them. Or yeah. there's like a little bit of a key that gives a name for each. We don't know when this was last updated, but it looks pretty full to me. Right. I mean, it is interesting to note here, right? We have like one of the blue light emergency posts. Right outside um, the door, yeah. Right outside the door. And I wonder if that's because it's affiliated with the university or if it's just so close to Logan, but it'll be interesting to see as we walk around yeah. if that's maybe an incentive for living somewhere. I mean, there's another one, another 50 feet down there, so, right. so <laughs> it seems like it's specifically placed. Yeah. Which could be an incentive in addition to the low rent. Yeah. That ended up being consistent at almost every residential property we visited. If there wasn't a blue light right at the entrance of the building, there was one at the nearest street corner. Okay, so here we are at another one of these buildings, and now there so are... So 6055. 6055. We're at the door, and there are six buzzers at this door, and four of them have names. Right. Two are blank. Right. Again, we don't Which, know that these are necessarily empty units. Right. Like um, how many buildings full of college students do we know that don't have names on them right yeah so okay so we're at the other door for the same building it's 6051 mm -hmm. of all the six buzzers they all have names on them um some more than one person in contrast to the other door where there are only four out of the six that had names on them right so this looks like it's a full building or at some point was yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. This went on for a while. Again, six, six buzzer spaces. This time only five are full. One blank. All six buzzers full with names. At least one of the buzzers is blank. It's kind of hard to read. One of them seems to have masking tape over it with letters that may have been there a while ago. 
no, it seemed to have been washed off. Yeah, certainly not recent. Three, only three buzzers here, they're all full. All six buzzers full. Here's another one, all six are full. And the last door. Jimmy told me that one of these units for sure is empty. And all of them have names on them, even though we know that one of them is empty. So our buzzer search might have left Grace and me with even more questions than answers. But what we did find is that these buildings seem very safe. Oh, look at this. There's even a blue light directly attached to this building. It's like attached to the wall as in well, an alley. As well as a blue light on the corner of that building. Yeah. And a safe passage sign. Do you see these lights on the top of the building, like in the corners? Um, oh, yeah. Like, kind of like floodlights. Yeah, and none of the other buildings seem to have that. Yeah, looking around, only the buildings that are owned by the university seem to have the floodlights directly over their doors. Again, like a bunch of floodlights outside. No blue light system right out front, but on the corner, just kind of half a block north, mm -hmm. uh, there is a blue light. Plus, we realized that some of these buildings, like Jimmy's, were certainly not in great condition. And the university wasn't going to invest in them to keep them up. But there were some buildings that the university was investing in. My name is Linda McHale. So you rent from, directly yes. from the university? My husband's a professor. And do you know what this construction is that's going yeah, on? Yeah, they're, they're refurbishing. So what they've done, is, as you can see that this is rusted, Mm -hmm. Okay, so they've taken those two panels out yeah. during the winter, and they're refurbishing them. And then they're going to come in and do the same over here. Mm -hmm. And they also went inside, and they like the archways in there were starting to, to crumble, and they took them all apart. You could see the original bricks in them. Wow. You know, and then they, they, they look normal. If you walk in that hallway, they look... But the real reason the university bought some of these properties may not be that they were trying to rent them out or even that they wanted to wait for their value to increase and then sell them to a company like Pioneer Acquisitions. The university doesn't always sell the buildings. In the first residential property that Jimmy rented from the university, from which Jimmy's family was eventually forced to leave, the university took a different route than selling to Pioneer Acquisitions. We lived in a building that was on the southeast corner of 60th and Woodlawn, if you can envision that. It's now a grassy lot. Uh, there were some buildings that had been there long-term, but they were knocked down in 2012. The property on 60th and Woodlawn, where Jimmy lived before 2013, will soon be the site of the Rubenstein Forum, a new building that will be going up as part of the university's expansion south of the Midway. You may have seen the designs. It's the one that looks like a stack of books jutting out on either side. That was uh, one of two times in the past many years that we've been notified by letter that something was happening and we needed to move out at the end of our lease. Uh, we were just in that building for one year, and roughly halfway through the year we were told that the university had plans to discontinue renting in that building. We weren't told anything about the timetable of when they'd be knocking it down, but gradually we learned that they would be knocking it down, and so we just left by the end of our lease, which was in the summer of 2011. From what I understood, they would have had to redo a lot of the buildings, refurbish a lot of the buildings. I know that that was an issue in our unit as far as the floor. I don't want to say decrepit, that's not the right word, but it old. It was an old floor. You couldn't walk down the hallway without making a tremendous amount of noise, and uh, you, it, was, it, it, didn't, it wasn't necessarily, it didn't have the feeling of being unsafe, but it, 
there were people, we were there when people came in and inspected the building very closely, and I think they, uh, when they were inspecting it, they all came to the conclusion that it was going to be a massive cost to redo the building or to make the necessary refurbishments so that people could continue to live there. And then they obviously had a plan and they uh, decided to discontinue the building and knock it all down. Maintaining the quality of life for residents there would have required a multi-million dollar overhaul. That's according to Steve Clone, the university's associate vice president for news and public affairs at the time. So you've had to move twice. Yes. And you have moved three times. We had lived at 5411 South Blackstone. Uh, that's also been sold. We had moved out of there because we had known about the Greenwood, the 53rd and Greenwood opening. And uh, we really liked the 53rd and Greenwood property. A lot of families did. There were a lot of families with young children that uh, were affiliated with the university but liked that property. It was kind of a neighborhood feel to it. So you didn't move out of the Blackstone building because it was being sold, though it did Correct. eventually get sold. We moved out because we saw a better opportunity. Uh, it was not because it was being sold or because the landlord told us to leave or anything mm -hmm. like that. What keeps you, I mean, you've moved so many times. Obviously, that has to be hard. It is. Um, it's, it's hard on my daughter. My daughter's 12. It's been hard on her, but she's handled it about as well as one could have. What keeps you from, you know, going to a, a different company that isn't the university but might provide a longer option? Sadly, I have to admit that most of the times that we've moved, we said to ourselves, this is the last time we're moving in Hyde Park. We say, never again, never again. This is it. We like this place, and we don't want to go through this process again. So pretty much each time we've moved out of the past two or three times, we've said this is the last time. Where we are now, we said this is the last time. We're moving in Hyde Park. We hope we don't have to do it again. I did hear a couple of rumors along the way. People said that our building only had several months or a year or X amount of time. We've now been there uh, about 21 months since we've lived there. So I've been told from fairly soon after we moved in until continuing recently, I've heard rumors that it might not be around for a long time. As far as Jimmy's building, it seems like he and his family have been dealt even more bad luck. When Grace and I were going around to different buildings, we met Thomas Dannenhofer Lafage, another resident of Jimmy's building. He had some new information about the building. Did you know the building's getting torn down in June, right? We've heard that, but... It's, it's definitely happening. Have yeah. you gotten a definite We We got a notice last... Three weeks ago, saying, like, we're not renewing your lease, you need to leave June 30th. You did? Yeah. Shoot, I that just talked to... That was three weeks ago. Like, I, three weeks ago. Yeah, wow. something like that. I talked to someone else who lives here who had heard rumors, um, but has not gotten anything official. Wow. Uh, well, we need, you, you needed to, like, sign for it because they want to make sure you got it. So we had to actually go to the post office to get it because oh we my weren't God. here when huh. they were doing it. University spokesperson Mary L. Samvelis confirmed this. The residents will have to evacuate the building by June 30th, and the building will be demolished soon after. As far as I know, Jimmy still hasn't gotten any letter notifying his family of the evacuation. I reached out to him when I learned that the building is definitely being torn down, but I haven't heard anything back. Now, maybe you're thinking, this is unfortunate for the residents of these apartments, but the university isn't really doing anything wrong here. And you'd be right. The university owns these properties and has the right to use them however they like. But there are some aspects of this residential properties program that may not really serve the purposes that the university says they do. I want to go back over a quote that I read earlier from the residential properties website. It reads, 
quote, consider renting one of the over 1,500 units owned and managed by the University of Chicago, a responsive landlord committed to providing safe and comfortable housing, end quote. There are two main issues with this statement. The first is the number. The statement says that the university rents out over 1,500 of these units to grad students and staff. But according to their website, it's actually a lot fewer. See, the website provides information about each of the properties that the university rents out. That information includes how many units or apartments are in each particular building. I added them all up, and there's only 496. I actually asked the university why the figure was incorrect, and they told me that it was a typo. They then changed the statement to read over 500 units. So that figure is now more accurate. But for a long time, the university has been advertising the residential properties building as being much larger than it is, which has probably misled some people in the past about how much housing is available to them. The second issue with the statement, though, has to do with how the university talks about the purpose of this program. The Residential Properties website says that the university is committed to providing safe and comfortable housing. I asked Jimmy if it really seems like the university is using these buildings because of its commitment to students and staff. And he had a bit of a mixed response. When you see how many of these residential properties the university has sold, mm -hmm. do you feel like this, this residential properties program is really serving you? I guess overall I would have to say that the university is not maximizing the amount of money it could make from it. I think that it's not running it as a profit center like something like Mac Properties would be. I can see that the decisions they've made are part of a long-term plan. They're not necessarily motivated, motivated in the short term by money. They may have a longer plan that's motivated by money, which I'm not familiar with. But in the short term, they've been a relatively good, generous, responsive landlord who did give us notice when they were going to change the plan. So, But uh, as far as the long-term plan, are they greedy? Are they, do they have a plan to make more money? I don't know. I'm not privy to that, but I can see that it seems that the university is moving geographically southward and what their dollar can buy south of the midway is greater than north of the midway. And so I think they've made a conscious decision to kind of migrate southward. And that will affect people. You know, that affects people who are in apartments or in housing or who wanted to be somewhere for X number of years. That will affect people. I don't think they've been rapacious about it, but, you know, that's just our experience. Jimmy says that he doesn't feel like the university is being greedy with these properties. However, he does have an issue with how he's been treated after being forced to leave his building. In the two times when uh, we were asked to move, we knew it behooved us right at that time to get on their waiting list for something to move to. They didn't expedite our getting on the waiting list, okay. but we knew about it. So when you're living in a residential property mm -hmm. and you're forced to move out of that building, you're not necessarily grandfathered into the next... Correct. You're not at all. And uh, you have to know the process to even know that you should get on a waiting list. How much time, again, did you usually have when you... It was, seemed like it was about six to eight months in the two times that it happened. So I think the first time was about six months, the second time about eight months. And that was enough time to get off the waiting list? That was enough time for us to know that we had to get on a waiting list and then 
we got off the waiting list just in time to be able to move. If we had had less notice and if we had stayed longer on the waiting list, we probably would have not moved back into university housing. So, yeah, that that's problematic if for anyone who wants to make long-term plans. Right. Anyone who values stability, uh, those can be problems. We had to figure out for ourselves that we had to get on a waiting list or we had to you know, pursue something else if we wanted to get back into university housing. That may sound like a small step, but if you don't take that small step for a couple of months and then you figure it out and then you get on the waiting list and the waiting list takes 10 months to get off, well, then you can't stay with university housing. So after doing all this research, I sat down with another Maroon podcaster, Miles Burton. Hey, what's up? So one thing I'm thinking about just in terms of housing in general is in the college, there are thousands of beds open to college students and they're building a new dorm with 1,300 beds. I'm just wondering how does that shape up compared to graduate student housing? So how much grad student housing are they providing? It's certainly a lot less than undergrad, which I mean... Graduate students and staff and faculty of the university often have more means to rent from private companies, but there, there are obviously a lot of people who depend on this kind of service. And maybe the most concerning part about this is how the university sort of markets this service. Until today, they said that there were 1,500 units available. There are actually only 496. And I say until today because I've been in contact with the university about this article and I asked them why the website still said 1,500, and they told me that it was just an error, and finally they updated the figure today. So that gives people, you know, a very skewed view of how many options they're going to have if they come to High Park to be a graduate student or a, or a staff member. And it's not only the Residential Properties website that shows up on the law school website on its housing page references the same 1,500 figure. The Divinity School has a map that's it has a map of these residential properties that shows a lot of properties that have been sold. The Social Service Administration, that school, seems to kind of dissuade students from renting from private companies. It says that the it says that the private housing market is, quote, tight, and that in contrast, the residential property service has numerous apartment buildings located around and within the campus area. So... You know, when you're looking at these websites, you would get a very different impression of the residential property system than reality. So to clarify, when the university is giving information to prospective graduate students, they're telling these folks that there are at least 1,500 units that they could possibly rent, but in fact, there's less than a third of whatever they're claiming. And if you want to get into one of those units, you're going to wait six to eight months? Yeah, well, I guess until today that had been the case, until they updated the website. And just to clarify, this this 500 number isn't how many are open or available right now. That's total. So there are about 500 units that the residential property system owns. And the university spokesperson, Marielle Sainvillis, told me that about 97% of these are full. So saying that there are 1,500 units and there's only less than 500 is a big difference. So when a building that the university owns as part of this program gets sold, is there any part of that deal that includes the new owners giving an option for people who already live there to stay in there? Yeah, Jimmy said that that happened one time. Uh, his building was sold. He had been paying about, I think it was in the low $1,000 per month for rent. 
And the new company that came in offered to let him stay for $2,500 a month. So it's not really a feasible option. So the university sells these properties out from under folks who are living in them who are paying a reduced rate, profits off of the transaction, and then the folks who are living in those buildings either get no deal from the new owners or get in fairly substantial rent hike. Yeah, I mean, that's one way to look at it. The To be clear, the university, when they sell it, you know, if Jimmy had seven months left in his lease, they honor that until his lease ended. But then if he wanted to renew it, he would have to pay the, the higher price. It is certainly one perspective could be that, you know, the university is profiting off of these buildings and not giving sort of any recourse to their residents. But at the same time, I mean, this is well within the university's rights. They don't have to have this program and they still do have some some properties available. The place where it gets tricky, I think, is how they're representing this program when they say that it's attractive and viable option for a lot of students, when in reality, it's a lot fewer than they say. Well, and whether it's attractive or viable is also up in the air. Well, that's one thing. I mean, I talked to Jimmy, I talked to a couple of other residents of these buildings, and they do really like living there. Like the reason that Jimmy keeps coming back is because they're super safe. There's blue lights at the entrance of almost every one of these buildings. They're affordable and the landlord is usually pretty responsive. Like they, they respond to Jimmy's work orders and requests pretty quickly. So as far as the housing option, I mean, it seems pretty attractive, except for the fact that you don't, there's a lot of uncertainty if you're living there. So, Gwen, how does this story play into the bigger conversation about the university's ongoing developments across campus? Yeah, so I guess there's sort of two parts to how the university is responding to kind of the recent surge in property values in Hyde Park. North of the Midway, you know, property values have never been higher. The university sold off a bunch of its dorms north of the Midway, like Broadview, Blackstone, and McLean. It also sold off a lot of residential properties north of the Midway that we've already talked about. So that's one way that the university is kind of reaping the rewards of this property value increase. At the same time, south of the Midway, where property values are surely increasing, but not quite as fast as north of the Midway, or not quite as high as north of the Midway, the university is kind of taking that dichotomy and investing a lot in the south. I mean, we're seeing expansion in big way south of Midway with the Rubenstein Forum, new grad being turned into the Keller Center, and most notably probably the Woodlawn Commons. Interesting. So they've been selling off the properties they've owned for a long time in areas where properties are worth more money, and they're at the same time building a series of large developments across the Midway where property values are significantly lower. Yeah, and actually the the properties that they've sold north of the Midway, the residential properties at least, according to the Hyde Park Herald, the university bought a lot of these residential properties during the Great Recession when retail values were super low. Wow. The interesting thing is there are some properties that Grace and I noticed when we were walking around that don't seem like they're going to be going down or being sold anytime soon. There's one called the Cloisters. That's a very high-end looking swanky kind of building. It has like walnut woodworking. A woman that we talked to said that there's a lot of professors that live there. Sometimes even visiting professors come through for a couple months and stay there. 
So there are buildings like that as well that are being very well maintained. That one is currently under construction to redo the front facade to preserve its historic look. So while Jimmy's building is pretty run down, there are some buildings that the university is investing in. So one thing that strikes me about this whole story is that the university seems to be putting money into buildings and seems to have plans to keep buildings like the Cloisters and the Stein Building that are both big towers that professors live in and that visiting scholars visit. And then conversely, they seem to be selling off and letting these buildings that graduate students, who are ostensibly the people serviced by this program, live in. And they're sort of letting those buildings fall into decline and then selling them when they plan on making developments. Right. Yeah. I mean, the construction that they were doing at the Cloisters was getting the rust off of the front gate. That's kind of the extent of the detail that they're willing to invest into that building. Whereas Jimmy said that the unit that's empty in his apartment was run down because people lived there for several years and it just wasn't livable. Just thinking about how much money they spent, for example, building Campus North or how much they're planning to spend on the construction of Woodlawn Commons. Right. That's it for the Maroon Weekly's preview of the Maroon's Housing Edition, which will be published Friday, April 13th. I want to thank Jimmy Heald for all of his input for the story, Grace Houck and Miles Burton for helping me shape the story, Ben, Kent, and the entire Logan Cage staff, and as always, Catherine McDonald, keep on keeping on. <laughs>